0: And as you're being seated, I want to let you know that we're going to start early with the text. We're going to do that first thing, Psalm 90, verses 1 through 17. I know that you have been standing for a while, so if you need to remain seated, that is absolutely fine. No judgment. But here it comes. I apologize. If you are willing and able to stand, uh, we're going to read Psalm 90, verses 1 through 17. Some of you guys are looking at me like, we just sat (laughs) Down. All right. If you got complaints, zcook at apexbaptist.org. All right. There we go. All right. Psalm 91 through 17. Now that we got our aerobics or calisthenics in a little bit, moving our bodies, let's engage the text. Psalm 90. It says this Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. You return mankind to the dust, saying, Return, descendants of Adam, for in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of the night. You end their lives, they sleep. They are like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning it sprouts and grows. By evening it withers and dries up. For we are consumed by your anger, we are terrified by your wrath. God, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days ebb away under your wrath, we end our years like a sigh. Our lives last 70 years, or if we are strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. And here as this psalm transitions into more of a plea, Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion on your servant. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. Make us rejoice for as many days as you have humbled us, for as many years as we have seen adversity. God, let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor by their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Now, truly, you may be seated. Father, move in this time. God, teach us. Allow us to see you, to see your word, God, and what you have for us. God, less of me, more of you, less of ourselves in this place, more of you. Amen. Assuming you live to be 80, you'll have had about 4,000 weeks uh, these are the words of British author and journalist Oliver, Oliver Berkman in his book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. This book was written in 2021. I read it recently when my wife and I were on vacation. And I'll be honest with you, when I read 4,000 Weeks, my first thoughts were like, surely 80 years is longer than that. That number sounded short to me. And in reference to this eye-opening number of 4,000 Weeks, Berkman, he says this, Expressing the matter in such startling terms makes it easy to see why philosophers from ancient Greece to the present day have taken the brevity of life to be the defining problem of human existence. We've been granted the mental capacities, catch this, to make almost infinitely ambitious plans, yet practically no time at all to put them into action And he illuminates this point by quoting Seneca, who was a Roman philosopher, and this comes from the letter known as On the Shortness of Life. Seneca says this, This space that has been granted to us, it rushes by so speedily and so swiftly that all save a very few find life at an end just when they are getting ready to live. In this book, Berkman, the author, he deals with the philosophy and the psychology of time management and human happiness. Uh, Berkman, he does not identify as a Christian. He would even identify himself, I heard him do it this way in a podcast, as Christian adjacent, in that he appreciates many things about the faith and about Jesus, but he just can't really get there to the Savior and Lordship of Jesus Christ. But Berkman, he spent years as a columnist and as a journalist, and what he would focus on in his column is writing about the topics of efficiency and productivity. As you know, years go by, and there's new trends for how to get the most out of your time in the office, how to make the most of your days, how, what's the best way to do task management to-do list. He would write about these things. So in much of his writings, he reviews these things. And he even tells a story about inbox zero, right? And listen, I do want to say this. It is good to be intentional with our time. Efficiency is not bad. But there is something better that we can be defined by. Something better that we can be defined by. But he talks about this story about inbox zero. And he says, you know what? I love getting to the end of my inbox and seeing that there's zero emails I need to deal with at the end of the day or the end of the work week. But if I'm honest with you, it's not as satisfying as you would think. And I see our operations director, Jesse, over there. Don't worry. I'm going to continue on email management progress and all of that. I'm not even going to look at you. All right. But he says, I got this and and I would get to zero and I would find that I was not as satisfied as I thought I would be. And in fact, even in approach to my emails or my checklist, it really seems that it's never ending. There's always more. There's always more. And talking about inbox zero and how that doesn't truly satisfy, there are some of you in this room who are like, if you opened up your phone right now, there's 1,200 emails on like your Google, your Gmail inbox. And you're like, thank you, pastor. Finally, some freedom. And there's others of you that the thought of 1,200 emails on your phone sent a shiver down your spine. And I'm gonna make up a fake number. I'd say 80% of the time, those people marry each other, okay? I don't know why, but that just seems to be how it happens. How it happens. But... The author's credit, I want to give him some credit. He understands that something is wrong with a culture of being defined by what you can produce and by holding efficiency and task elimination as the highest of virtues. There's something wrong with not being more than what you can do or what you can provide, what you can produce. Dear listener, you are so much more than that. He identifies that we are limited and finite creatures, that we need rest and that we need balance, but there is still something missing from Berkman's diagnosis and his way forward specifically. You see, Berkman, he diagnoses that something is off with our surroundings and our ways as humans, but he is missing the true and the ultimate solution for us. When you get to the end of his book, the questions: how do I live well in a world where bad things happen? How do I make my life meaningful and make the most of my, of my days, not just do the most within my days? Where can I truly rest as I live and work in this place? These questions, they remain unanswered, and that's not as a shot at him. I believe he gave his best effort, but it comes short. And this is the beauty of Psalm 90, the psalm of Moses, the only psalm that we have from Moses. This psalm, it puts us on a path of experiencing a life that is meaningful, and this is important, in the midst of an exile experience. More on exile soon, I promise. And, but within that meaningfulness, what I want you to know is not simply managing our time well, but living well. And living well in exile, it includes both rest and work that is built on the satisfaction that comes from the joy of the Lord. But get this, here's the good news. Because in a moment, actually for the next few moments, we're going to walk through some stuff that feels heavy, that feels a little dark, and might have yourself asking, "Was this the right day to come?" It's a little heavy, but there's good news that comes, and here is the good news. I'm going to bury the lead a little bit here. That God is a God who both delivers us from exile, but also walks with us in the midst of it. He walks with us in the midst of it. That's the good news. That's the good news. You know, we're also helped tremendously, not just from this passage, but if we look at the Psalms as a whole. Psalms is a collection of five books, and we can't deal with all of what each book focuses on. But I want you to know that Psalm 4, or excuse me, Psalm book 4, it is begun by Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is the first book, is the first Psalm of Psalm book 4. Book 3, the previous one, you can see this summarized really well in Psalm 89, book 3 deals with the fall of the Davidic line of kings, a loss of hope for the Israelite people, the idea of exile that is both coming and they begin to experience. But book four, it responds to this crisis of exile and Psalm 90 begins that response. If I was to simplify it a little bit, book three of Psalms is the what is happening and book four of Psalms is how do we respond? What do we do? What do we do? What is happening, and what do we do now? Historically speaking, at the time when book four was compiled, compiled, the audience found itself without this Davidic line of kings that they put their hope in, and in the midst of Babylonian captivity. Some of the readers at this time, they would, when they would hear this psalm, they would have been either in Babylon or back in Israel, yet under the oppression of a foreign nation. And from the, so from the literary context and the historical context, we know that this psalm is a response. It is a response to people in a situation with no king, no national security, and longing for a refuge, a safe place to call home. Psalm 90, being written by Moses, carries weight for the reader. First, traveling back to the time of Moses, takes the reader back to a time before human kings for Israel. That's intentional. Second, remember who Moses is. Moses, who the Lord used to rescue his people from Egypt. Moses, who wandered the desert, leading a volatile people. Moses, who did not step foot into the promised land. Moses was a man who experienced both God's grace and his judgment. Moses was a man of exodus. He was also a man of exile. Exodus and exile. This word exile, it carries with it tremendous meaning in scripture. It's a common theme. We can look back to Adam and Eve exiled from the garden. The people of Israel exiting Egypt and wandering the wilderness for 40 years. An exile experience. The people of Israel exiled from the promised land due to their failure to uphold the covenant. But there's even more to exile. In the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, exile is symbolic of the human condition. The human condition. The reality of exile, it creates this this feeling that this world is not as it should be. And you do not even need to know Jesus to know that this world is broken and that it is messed up and that something is not right. And there's got to be something that makes sense of all of this. We see this and we feel this, this brokenness and broken relationships, sickness, loneliness, job loss, poverty, hunger, bitterness, whatever it might be. We feel this world is not as it should be. It is clear to us we are not home fully, that we are experiencing, in some way, shape, or form, an exile experience. As we discuss the Psalm of Moses, I believe that we can see the answer to the question how can we have hope in the midst of exile? How can we have hope? Point one, God, our eternal refuge. I'd I'd encourage you as we deal with the text today to keep Psalm 90 open before you. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Some of your translations may say, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I love the way that the writer and pastor, Eugene Peterson, how he interpreted this Eternity to eternity. Here's what he would say. From once upon a time to kingdom come, you are God. From beginning to end. Guys, God is so true of him that he has always been. He is and he always will be. If human history sits on a bookshelf, this is like how how I like to picture it. If if, If all of human history sits on a bookshelf, God's hands are the bookends of it. And as someone just like you who's experienced inconsistency in this life, there's something safe and secure about someone who is consistently good and consistently themselves and consistently delivers on their promises. That's what God does for us, our refuge. In the first two verses, what the psalmist is saying is essentially this. Father, we have experienced dark days before. And in those days, you proved to be our refuge, our place of safety, our place of rest, our dwelling place, our home. And God, your past faithfulness is evidence that we can trust you today in the midst of exile. And moving forward, beginning in verse 3, keep your eyes going down this passage as we travel it together. In verse 3, we start to see a contrast of who God is and who we are as humans, and you could even say who God is and who we are not. What He is capable of doing, what we are not capable of doing. We see this contrast begin. Between verses 3 and 11, what we're going to see is that life is brief and it is full of struggle. And this leads us to our second point the human condition. Hear this contrast as we look at this text God, you are refuge in every generation, we return to dust. God, you are from eternity to eternity. We are like grass that grows in the morning that in the evening withers and dies. We seek to dodge it, and I do this. We dodge it mentally as much as we can, but it's the truth. Life is short. It's brief. Death is a feature of the human condition. We cannot dodge it. We cannot run from it. And actually, it's a kindness that we can do to ourselves to think about our deaths and number our days is what this passage is teaching us. As we keep going, when we see the language of verse 7, the language of being consumed by God's anger, this might startle us. Like, let's be honest, sometimes it can be startling to read about God's wrath and his anger towards sin. But we must remember this. I think that this context will help you to understand this a little bit more we must remember that the people of Israel and God were in covenant with one another more on the covenant momentarily but this language that we read in Psalms 90 it's so similar to the language of Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29 on what would happen if the people of Israel broke the covenant and spoiler alert they did they did furthermore just as the failures and sins of Israel were before the face of God as we see in verse 8 The same is true of our sins. The same is true of ours. God, the same God who wants to be our refuge, I remind you, he is aware of not just our brokenness, but the sins that we commit. He's aware of them, that they are before his eyes. Before his eyes. That's very personal. Whenever, think of someone that you have wronged in the past. Maybe it was a moment that you had a short temper, a moment where you didn't deliver on something that you said yes to. And and, and you deal with it with that person and, and you're dealing with the conflict and you're dealing with the repercussions right before their presence. It's like that with God. He sees and knows our mistakes. He knows them. And the sins that carry consequences, the sins we commit do. I want you to consider Moses once more. While displaying so much faithfulness in his life, he also had moments of doubt and even acting against God's command for him. I think of the moment where Moses struck the rock like he was not supposed to do. Moses had moments of disobedience, not just doubt, but willful disobedience. Because of this, he did not enter the promised land. Moses experienced both exodus and exile, grace, but also justice. But I want you to hear this. Here's the good news. We, We cannot talk about the wrath of God and his anger towards sin without also talking about who he is in the full. The God who is just and judges from that position, he is merciful and he offers to deliver us and to teach us how to live in the middle of our exile experience and to comfort us. That is who God is. The psalmist, he's teaching us that security and stability that cannot be found in ourselves, but in the lasting strength and work of an eternal God who provides refuge in the midst of life's storms. That's the whole point to this point. That's That's what the author wants us to know. But the temptation for Israel is the same temptation for us that we can seek refuge. We tend to do this, to seek refuge, security, and find our identity in other people or man-made things or institutions rather than finding our home in the eternal refuge, which is God. Finding our home in him means we find our identity in him. We rest in him, and we are satisfied by what he says about us over what others may say of us. What he calls us to do is our work versus the work that others may tempt us with. I want to give you an example of the ways that Israel would, would, seek to tend, would tend to seek other things besides God. For example, shortly after they were liberated from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites would soon after claim, just a few short weeks later, that it would have been better for them to have been back in Egypt under slavery than to be in the wilderness with God, the God that they just saw move mightily to deliver them. We also see another moment where rather than worshiping God, they deliver and trusting him in the midst of a difficult season. What they do is they fashion an idol of their own hands, a golden calf, and they worship this idol. You see they had just been delivered by God's hands, but rather than trusting his, they decided to trust what they could form in their own power. We do this too. We could go on and on with examples from the Old Testament of times that the people of God would either look within themselves or to the ways of the outside world for security or prosperity. And for Israel who had made a covenant with God, this is a problem. This is my best shot at a 20-second summary of what covenant is. To put it shortly, God in his love chose the people of Israel. He chose them. He delivered them from slavery and established them as his chosen people to show the world his ways, his kindness, and his love. He wanted them to be a light to the world to see who he is and what he's about. Yet Israel would consistently fail to live and love the way that God would have them. So they failed the covenant. I want you to know this. This is true for Israel. This is true for us. God desires for our minds to be directed toward him, our hearts to desire him, and our hands, our life, our work to be about his ways. And although it might be difficult to grasp, God was using exile for this purpose. He was using exile for this purpose. We cannot forget that God's ways are not ours. His timing is not the same as our timing. And that can make it hard to trust him, but God was seeking to form a people that would be about his way. And in studying for this text, I was reminded that freeing Israel from the oppression of Egypt, it was easy compared to the process of freeing them from the slavery to their own sin. There's an excellent book called Echoes of Exodus by Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson, and it frames it this way. It'll be on the screen behind me. Delivering Israel from slavery to Pharaoh took only 10 plagues. Delivering Israel from slavery to self, sin, sex, greed, and idolatry took 10 commandments and 10 separate trials and corresponding judgments and ended up with an entire generation dying in the wilderness. And even then, the problems persisted. True slavery is captivity of the soul, not just the body. Until a nation or a person is freed from that and free to become what they originally intended to be, their exodus is incomplete. And furthermore, and grab hold of this, biblical freedom involves both halves of the exodus journey. It does mean being rescued from the tyranny of the other. God cares about that. And the tyranny of the self. Egyptian enslaving and Israelite craving. The goal of the covenant was not to simply free Israel from outward oppression, but the captivity of the soul to sin. And that's his goal for us. That's, his, that's how God deals with the truth of the human condition. The reality that we find ourselves in is that he changes us by the work of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, in the midst of our experience on this earth. May I ask you this simple question, friends? What might be holding you captive are there things that if you're honest, they could be choices that you make, habits that you have, what, what tendencies that you have, emotions that you feel that cause you to lash out. Are there things that if you're honest, you would say, it's not as much that I'm holding on to them, but they are holding on to me. And I need deliverance from this. I need saving. I need rescue. God, deliver me. Maybe you need to make a plea like the Psalm of 90 does. God, bring me satisfaction. God, teach me how to live, make my life matter. I want to make a brief note on the issue of numbering our days, and we will arrive to the deliverer. Verse 12, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. How do we respond to the hum- human condition? How do we do it? With eyes open to our reality. Open. Open. During the monastic movement, it was not uncommon for a monk, if you were to walk into their room or their place of study, to have on their desk a skull. Why would they do this? It was not because the Chip and Joanna Gaines of the days thought it was a good move. Uh, It was a reminder. It would be from Brother Francis or whoever lived down the hall and passed, and it would be his skull that would be on the desk. It would be a reminder. God, teach me to number my days. Help me pursue what really matters because the end is in my sight. The end is in my sight. The late Tim Keller, he can help us understand this even more. He says this Rather than living in fear of death, we should see death as spiritual smelling salts that will awaken us out of our false belief that we will live forever. And catch this I talked about how we need to have eyes open to reality. Catch this. Everything in life is temporary except for his love. This is reality. May we live with eyes open to this reality so that we may be awake to his love. God, remove distractions. Help us see you. Help us see you. Awareness to our reality, it makes clear our need for God. In church, the first step to deliverance, to to pursuing the way of Jesus, is realizing the truth of our situation and our circumstance, of who God is and who we are and what he can provide for us. And that is how we follow after him. First, with awareness, acknowledgement, and surrender. Point three, a plea for deliverance. We're going to go through this last part quickly. From verses 13 to 17, we read a prayer, a cry of one clinging to hope that the God who made a way in the wilderness can also pave a way through the exile experience. We read, God, have compassion on us. Satisfy us with your love so we can rejoice and be glad all of our days. God, allow us to see days of gladness as we have seen days of adversity. Let your work be seen by us and God, establish the work of our hands. One commentator made the point that establish our work could be read as make our work matter or even more desperate, God, make our lives meaningful. We feel this, we've talked about this, that we feel the brokenness of this world, that we go through moments or seasons, even extended seasons of time of sadness or grief. And sometimes we struggle to see the light that goes underneath the doorway of a dark room that Jesus provides for us. Even for us, if you're a believer in this room, sometimes it's hard to see. So how do we have hope? We cry out into this very plea, Jesus, our deliverer, he enters the scene. Jesus steps into an exile, if you will, rejected by many of his own people, mocked, disregarded. He steps into exile and he delivers us, delivers us from captivity to sin and frees us so that we can follow him. And in him and through him, our joy, it can be made complete in the midst of an exile experience in the midst of it, not escaping from it, but in the midst of it and walking through it with him. Church, we are freed from sin so we can be freed to Jesus. True freedom is found in his way and following after him. And hear me, in Christ, we are freed from Egypt. We are freed from Babylon and we can be freed from the captivity of our own sin. In verse 13, the question is asked, Lord, how long? A common question asked in the Hebrew scriptures. Galatians 4 tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. He had a plan this entire time. Verse 14, as for satisfaction, Jesus says in John 6 that he is the bread of life and that in following him, we will be satisfied. Psalm 90, I love this. It ends with a plea to make our lives meaningful, and Jesus offers to teach us to live. I'd encourage you to spend time in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, where it is put so clearly that Jesus, his way for us, he teaches us how to experience freedom in exile and also how to walk through it. The deliverer has come, his name is Jesus, and his words to us, learn from me. The Jesus who is savior is also Lord, learn from him. Learn from him. If we number our days well, we walk with him. If we do not, we walk separate from him. I wanna end with the story of two people at the end of their lives. One, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, who's known for the statement, "God is dead." most definitely did not make his pilgrimage with Jesus, but he did experience brokenness in this world. At the end of his life, he lost his mind. His final spoken words were, "Mother, I'm dumb." And in his final days, he would pin letters of madness under the name Dionysius, who was a Greek god and also the crucified, doing so in likeness to Jesus. But hear the horror in those final words: "Mother." I'm dumb. Nietzsche lived less than 3,000 weeks, and his final days were unhinged and spent in madness, which is sad. I compare it to the final days of Dallas Willard. Willard died on May eighth, 2013, from pancreatic cancer. In his final days, he invited some close companions to be around him to witness his transition from this life to being in the presence of God. I'll close with this excerpt from Becoming Dallas Willard by Gary Moon. At 4.30 a.m., a nurse came in to turn Dallas in his bed. Her visit awakened Dallas's very good friend, Gary Black, who was in the hospital room with him. And moving him, Dallas was awakened too. Gary took Dallas's hand. Dallas turned to him and told him to tell his loved ones how much he was blessed by them and how much he appreciated them. Then as Gary described, in a voice clearer than I had heard in days, he he leaned his head back slightly and with his eyes closed said, thank you. Gary did not feel that Dallas was talking to him, but to another presence that Dallas seemed to sense in that room. And those were the last words of Dallas Willard, thank you. He said to a very present and then finally visible to him, God. Dallas Willard lived just north of 4,000 weeks, and though his body felt the impact of our exile experience through his battle with cancer, his soul was not captive to Egypt or Babylon, but it belonged to Jesus. And that is good news. Father, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. I'm gonna close with a prayer of St. Benedict that has been so helpful for me in the last few weeks. And then after I pray, we're gonna get to enjoy a baptism together. But church, may we leave this place asking God, teach us to number our days, to do so carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. And we cling to the Deliverer. And we walk in the path of the Deliverer. And we learn from Him. We follow Him. Gracious and Holy Father, give me wisdom to perceive you. Intelligence to fathom you. Patience to wait for you. Eyes to behold you. A heart to meditate upon you. And a life to proclaim you. Through the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.